Well, good morning once again, church. Hebrews chapter 2. Today's message is entitled, Jesus, the Captain of Our Salvation. Last week, we started a new series through the book of Hebrews. It's called Hebrews because it was written to Jews who had become Christians, began following Jesus as their Messiah and Savior. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, um, but we do know that God spoke through that person and that this is God's word. The angel, sorry, the author starts out in chapter 1 explaining that Jesus is better than the angels. That's what chapter 1 was all about. And as we compare Jesus with the angels, it's easy to see why. The angels are created beings, ministering spirits. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 reminds us that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. The angels, they worship and serve God. But Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 remind us that Jesus is God the Son. Verse 3 tells us that by himself, Jesus cleansed our sin and sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In every way, Jesus is far better than the angels. And so with this in mind, look back at the very first verse in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Since the beginning, God has been speaking to creation, speaking to us. God spoke through the prophets. God spoke through angels. But 2,000 years ago, God spoke through his Son as God became flesh, Jesus. And he is so much better than the angels. And so with that idea in mind, that whole point of chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels, we come into chapter 2 um, in verses 1 through 4, and we have the first warning in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So this is the first of five warnings that we'll read in the book of Hebrews. And this one comes right after the idea and point that Jesus is better than the angels. Therefore, since Jesus is God in the flesh, since Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things, since Jesus brings a better message than the angels, therefore, verse 1 again, 
we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. The idea is you and I must pay attention to what Jesus has spoken, lest we drift away. For verse 2, if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, God used the angels to deliver the Old Testament law to the Israelites. You remember the story where God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea, and then God gives them the Ten Commandments, and he begins to explain to them, this is how I want you to be different from everybody else. This is how I want you to live so that you are identified with me, your God, your Savior, your Redeemer. And God used angels to give that law to the Israelites. And those Israelites who broke God's law were punished. Therefore, since we have received a greater message from a greater messenger communicated by God, the commander of angels, how could we expect to avoid punishment if we neglect so great a salvation? You may remember when Jesus rebuked the cities that did not believe him in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 20. It says, then Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. We learn two things here in this passage. First of all, Jesus declares that there are different degrees of judgment. Some will be punished more severely on judgment day. Others will be punished less severely on judgment day. The second thing we learn here is that Jesus explains the level of judgment somebody receives is directly correlated to how much light they have, how much light they've witnessed. These cities in Israel experienced a greater light because Jesus preached among them. Jesus performed miracles before their very eyes, and yet they still did not repent. On the other hand, cities in the Old Testament like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom they had a much lesser light. They still had the testimony of creation around them, the testimony of their conscience that God puts on our hearts, and the testimony of the prophets around them. And they will still be judged for rejecting that lesser light, but their judgment will be less severe. And so we have this principle. The more light we have received, the harsher the judgment that will come. 
I believe you and I have received a greater light. We have access to all of God's Word. We can read about who He is and what He has done, how He has come and died on the cross in our place and paid for our sins in full on the cross, how He has offered salvation to any and all who will trust in Him. Therefore, if we neglect so great a salvation, so great a light, we can expect greater and more severe judgment in the end. Now, I want to be clear, this part of what I'm talking about, this warning, is to those of you who are not yet a Christian. Don't put off your decision to trust in Jesus. Don't wait. Trusting in Jesus is the only way to escape eternal punishment in hell. Don't believe the lie that says God is too loving to send people to hell. Or the lie that says God would never send me to hell. God's judgment is very much real. We read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 8 in the NIV translation. It says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So do not neglect your chance of salvation. Jesus came to rescue you, so let Him. Surrender your heart to Him by putting your faith in Jesus. Ask Him to save you, and He will. Look back at verse 3 again. The author of Hebrews speaks of this great salvation, saying that at the first it began to be spoken by the Lord, by Jesus himself. And this gospel was confirmed to us by those who heard him, the disciples. And verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, Jesus shared the gospel, the disciples confirmed the gospel, and the Holy Spirit verified the gospel by granting signs and miracles and wonders. So do not neglect so great a salvation. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jewish believer. Those people who were receiving this letter of Hebrews for the first time, you've, you've left Judaism to follow Christ. You still have some of the culture and some of the traditions, but you're following Jesus because you found your Messiah. But there are many people in your friends and your family that haven't followed Christ. And they look at you as if you've turned against them. In fact, you might be kicked out of worship at the synagogue or at the temple, ostracized from many of your own family members. The priests at the temple continue to offer their sacrifices daily, and you hear the calls to come and worship. And yet it's not the same, because you know Jesus, but they don't. And it was tempting for these first century Christians with that Jewish background to drift back into the religion of Judaism. The author of Hebrews, he says to them, and he says to us today, on your note sheet, wake up. 
Wake up. Don't let your faith drift. Keep pressing on towards Jesus. Now this here, this is a warning for you and I who are already Christians. Wake up. Don't let your faith drift. Keep pressing on towards Jesus. Do you know what it takes to begin drifting? What do you have to do to drift away? Well, you do nothing. It just happens. Slowly, over time, you drift away. As a Christian, we are like fish swimming against the current. The world, our flesh, and the devil are trying to pull us downstream, down the current. But Jesus calls us to swim upstream against the flow. But how easy is it to go with the flow? It's so easy even a dead fish can swim with the flow. And so I ask you, in what ways are you personally steering your life towards Jesus? How are you pursuing him? What are you doing to remind yourself of his word and of his promises? In what ways are you purposefully saying yes to Jesus and saying no to your flesh so that you don't drift off course? I think sometimes we as Christians get comfortable where we are. We'll swim upstream just enough so that we stand still. At least we're not getting swept downstream, right? But we kind of have this idea of, well, I want Jesus, but I also want to be comfortable in this world. I I want Jesus, but I want to still follow after my own flesh. We're indecisive, torn between two desires. God would say to you, just look to me. I am enough, he would say. Follow me. Here's the good news. Today, he gives us this reminder, this wake-up call, So that if we realize that we have drifted spiritually, we've drifted off course, he invites you and me to once again give heed to his word, to listen to what he has called us to do, to fix our eyes on Jesus and to obey his word. And by his grace, you'll once again be back on course, no longer drifting. Now in verses 5 through 9, we read about Jesus, the Son of Man. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. Now, when it talks about the world to come, he's talking about the future world, the millennial kingdom of Jesus, Jesus' thousand-year reign. And during this thousand-year millennial kingdom, the Bible says Christians will rule and reign with Christ. In Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, And had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So God will not give the world to come for angels to rule alongside God. 
No, but he gives it to believers for us to rule alongside him in that thousand-year reign. Look at verse 6. It starts off saying, But one testified in a certain place, saying... Now stop there for a moment. Notice in your Bible, the rest of verse 6 is in a different format. Maybe it's centered as a column or it's a new paragraph. That's because the author is about to quote a passage from the Old Testament. In your Bible, there should be a little footnote telling you where this quote comes from in the Old Testament. And in this example on the screen, you can see the little footnote, the little A at the beginning of the quote. And then down below, you can see, okay, this is from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. This is helpful to know because in your Bible, especially in books like Hebrews, we're going to have a lot of references to the Old Testament. And so in your Bible, Make note of these little footnotes so that when something's quoted, you can go over and turn back to the Old Testament and find the passage that's being quoted. Now, look again at verse 6. It says, But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels." You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under mankind's feet. This passage says that mankind is a little lower than the angels in the sense that, well, we're flesh, we're mortal, we're limited in our knowledge and power. And yet, it was to mankind that God gave the dominion of this world to. God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And one day... Mankind will indeed rule over all of creation in the world to come, in the millennial kingdom. Yet, right now, we don't see that type of dominion or ruling. The author goes on in the rest of verse 8 in your Bibles and says, For in that he has put all in subjection under mankind, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under man's rule. God put all things under the dominion of man. So why don't we see all creation subject to mankind? Why does man even fail to have control over his or her own flesh? That's a pretty lame dominion, if you ask me. Well, when Adam and Eve sinned, they fell from their ability to fulfill God's command. Mankind is fallen, broken, unable to exercise the dominion God planned. In fact, the Bible calls Satan the lowercase God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan is one of the rulers of the darkness of this age. What a horrible place we are in. We have fallen short of the position God gave us, and instead, 
Creation is ruled by a usurper, Satan, the ruler of this age. What can we do? Where is our hope? Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. You might want to underline verse 9 in your Bibles. It's such a beautiful passage showing us there is hope. His name is Jesus. Verse 9 says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, Jesus became flesh. It's not saying, well, chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels, but now in chapter 2, Jesus is less than... No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying Jesus became flesh. He took on humanity so that he might taste death for everyone. If Jesus never became a man, he could never have tasted death on our behalf. On your note sheet, your next fill in the blank, Jesus tasted death for me so I might have eternal life. Consider what Jesus accomplished by becoming flesh. Jesus became flesh to be Emmanuel, God with us. He became flesh so that he could die for us. Jesus became flesh so that he could live the perfect and sinless life that we failed to live. Jesus became flesh so that he might take the rule and dominion back from Satan onto his own shoulders. And as the perfect Man in the flesh, Jesus fulfills God's desire that mankind rule over all creation. Jesus does what we failed to do. Jesus fulfills our missing role. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, in the next section, in verses 10 through 18, we read how Jesus became one of us. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. That's kind of interesting. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect through sufferings? This idea is repeated later in Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 8 where it says, though Jesus was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. How can Jesus become perfected if he had never sinned? If Jesus is God and has perfect knowledge, how does Jesus learn obedience through his suffering and death? Well, it simply means that Jesus endured the test and passed. You see, Jesus was and always will be perfect and sinless. Yet when he became flesh, he experienced temptation, as you and I experience temptation, and yet he resisted perfectly. Jesus was always obedient perfectly obedient to God the Father. But only when Jesus became flesh was that obedience put to the test. 
Jesus cried out in Luke 22, verse 42, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Therefore, Jesus was always perfect. He was always obedient. He always had all knowledge. And yet, through his suffering on the cross, it was the ultimate litmus test to prove and verify that, yes, indeed, Jesus is perfect and obedient. Look at verse 10 once again. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The Greek word used here in verse 10 is, that's translated captain is the same exact Greek word later on in Hebrews 12, verse 2, and it's translated author. So Jesus is both the captain of our salvation and the author and finisher of our faith. It means that Jesus paved the way to heaven so that we by faith can follow him into salvation. Apart from Jesus, our way was blocked off because of our sin. We had no access to God. We had no hope of escaping his righteous judgment. But we see Jesus, who became the captain and author of salvation. Consider this comparison on the screen and on your note sheet. Adam, well, he tasted the sweetness of forbidden fruit. In doing so, he brought death to all mankind and he himself became a slave to sin. On the other hand, Jesus, he tasted the bitterness of death for all of us. In doing so, he offers eternal life to all mankind, and Jesus became the captain of salvation. Praise the Lord. Jesus is our hope. We continue in verse 11. It says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now that word sanctify, that's a real churchy word. It's a big one. It just means to be set apart, to be made holy. And so it's the idea that we are called to be different from this world called to be identified with God. We are set apart for Jesus. So God is the one who sanctifies us. He sets us apart, makes us different, puts a new heart inside of us, gives us new desires. And we, the church, are those who are being sanctified. And so verse 11 says that Jesus calls us his brethren. Verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. These three quotations from the Old Testament point to how Jesus identifies with you, with me, by calling us his family. We are his brethren. We are the children given to him. 
though you and I are flesh, though we are sinful humans, though you may be ashamed of things that you have done, things you have said, Jesus is not ashamed to call you brethren. That's pretty remarkable. Notice this, that we didn't make the first move. You and I didn't decide one day, we're going to be like Jesus. No, the first step in our salvation was when Jesus became like us. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brethren. He became one of us. He proved himself to be the best of us. He tasted death for all of us. He is indeed the captain of our salvation. And as a good captain, Jesus both commands us upwards to swim towards him, to pursue him more and press on. But Jesus himself also leads the way. He doesn't command us from behind, say, go, I'm behind you. Jesus says, this is what I have for you. I'm before you and behind you. I'm with you. I'm sustaining you. I'm strengthening you. I'm changing your desires. Jesus does it all. Now look at verse 14. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, we humans are flesh, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, apart from Christ, death is a horrible thing. It's a tragic end, a fearful expectation. But Jesus became flesh and blood so that through his death, he conquered death. The devil has been defeated. Satan can no longer sentence you and I to eternal death by pointing to our sin because Jesus paid for our sin in full on the cross. And so, verse 16, For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Here, the seed of Abraham refers to anybody who is trusted in God. You see, Abraham is known as the father of faith. Have you put your faith in God? Is your faith in Jesus? Then you are the seed of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because Jesus became flesh, representing mankind, and because he suffered and died on the cross, he made propitiation or payment for our sins. You see, we read in Romans 3.23 that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. We all fall short. Me too. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. 
You see, by breaking God's law, we have earned His wrath. There is nothing we can do to appease His wrath. It would be like a convicted murderer pleading to the judge for mercy. And the murderer says, I swear I'll be good, I'll be perfect for the rest of my life. Well, the judge would reply, you can't earn freedom by being good because you've already earned prison by being bad. You and I cannot go to heaven by being good because we've already, all of us, earned hell by being bad, by rebelling against the Lord. Therefore, the only way for us to be saved, the only way to escape judgment, the only way to go to heaven is to have a perfect, sinless person take our place and pay our debt. And that's why we read in Hebrews 2, 9. I'm going to keep reading it, guys. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Jesus was perfect. Complete payment for our sin. Jesus had to become flesh so that he could be the propitiation for your sin and my sin. But it gets better. Look at verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to give aid to those who are tempted. He is able, church. More than simply delivering us from God's wrath, Jesus also becomes a merciful and faithful high priest. You see, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were many priests that would perform different duties of doing the sacrifices and, and keeping the fire going on the altar and keeping the, the candles lit and, and the showbread inside the temple. And then there was the high priest. That was the leading priest. It was the highest position of the priesthood. And he alone, the high priest, he alone had the role to enter into the Holy of Holies. You see, inside the temple, that first room was the holy place. And if you were a priest and you had to go and light something or, or put a new showbread on the table there, you could go into that room. But there was a big, thick veil, a curtain, that separated that room from the Holy of Holies. Because the Holy of Holies represented God's presence. And everything about the design of the temple, the whole structure of it, screams this idea, God is holy, you are not. Don't get too close. Don't get too close. You're not worthy. And so this high priest, on one day of the year, only one guy, he would go in beyond the veil, and he would sprinkle blood. And it was a picture of how he was a mediator representing the people to God, saying, Lord, have mercy on us. We are sinners. You are holy, and we are not. Well, church, Jesus has become our high priest. He has become our mediator between God and man. But unlike the human high priest, who only entered in once per year and by himself, 
Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies once and for all, and he left the door open for us to follow. You might remember that when Jesus breathes out his last breath on the cross and he cries out, it is finished, it mentions in Scripture that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's the veil we're talking about, the veil into the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine being a priest trying to put some bread on the table, and all of a sudden the curtain that separates you from the presence of God is torn from top to bottom? You're going to be scared out of your robes, right? That's what Jesus did. He opened up the way. As our high priest, he has gone before us into God's presence, and he says, come, you can follow me because I've paid for your sin. The whole idea of God is holy, you are not, stay away, that was the old covenant. Jesus came to bring the new covenant, the new covenant that says anyone who believes in me will not perish but have everlasting life. That is Jesus. That is why it is so amazing that he is our high priest. As we read through Hebrews chapter 2, we think of the Jewish believers who had lost so much alienated from their Jewish friends and family, no longer welcome at the Jewish temple, many of them suffering arrest and persecution because of their faith in Jesus. You see, life as a Christian was hard in the first century. And still today, you have your own hard. Even as a Christian, we still struggle in our relationships. Even as a Christian, our health still suffers. Even as a Christian, we know this world is not our home, and yet we're still stressed by the evil around us. How fragile our world is. You and I, we know Jesus' forgiveness, and yet we still struggle with our own flesh and with temptation every day. It can be overwhelming at times. It can tempt us to lose focus and begin to drift away. Well, church, here is God's word for us today. On your note sheet, three ways to press on. And the first one is focus. Focus, Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, notice this verse does not say we have seen Jesus as in the past. This verse does not say we will see Jesus, although that is true. This verse says, now, right here, we see Jesus. By faith, we look to Jesus, the captain of our salvation, the merciful and faithful high priest. Don't focus on your failures. Don't focus on your successes either. Don't worry about yourself. Just press on in Christ. The next way to press on is to obey. Hebrews 2.1 says, give the more earnest heed. Put your listening ears on. Listen to what God has said and then do it. Because you cannot properly give heed if you do not obey. So take that next step of obedience in your life. Whatever that is. What is the Holy Spirit leading you to do or to change? Often the reason our walk with Christ is going backwards is because there's something he's told us to do and we've said, I don't want to. 
I'm not ready. And so we focus on these other areas, and we try to, to swim upstream closer to Christ in these other areas. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit's saying, no, no, we've got unfinished business here. You need to obey me in this area. And you say, well, that's just one area. I'm doing great elsewhere. And the Lord says, I'll be here. I'll wait. Is there something that you need to repent of? Don't neglect what Jesus has spoken by making excuses. Finally, the third way to press on is to remember. Remember that He is able to help. Hebrews 2.18. Why is Jesus able to help us who are tempted to stop trying? Why can Jesus help us who are tired of fighting the fight? It's because Jesus himself was tempted. Jesus himself endured suffering. Imagine that. The God of the universe, the eternal one who has no beginning and he has no end, he has stepped into time in flesh. And he died for us. He suffered for us. He endured the suffering of hunger and thirst and weariness. He endured the suffering of temptation and spiritual attack. Jesus endured the suffering of slander and betrayal and injustice. And then he endured the suffering of the cross. Therefore, Jesus is able to help you and me who are tempted. Because Jesus is your faithful and merciful high priest, he gets it. He not only knows the reality of suffering, but he's experienced it. He's been there. He is able to give you and me aid. Don't try to press on in your own strength. Don't try to resist temptation by being strong. Instead, let Jesus be your strength and be your help. Indeed, we have so great a salvation. Praise God that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for all of the work that you did, all of the suffering and humbling yourself. Lord, all of the pain and humiliation and mocking that you took for us on our behalf. Lord, for anybody here today or listening online that has not yet put their faith in you, God, I pray that you would just speak to their heart right now. God, that you would invite them to look to you and say, Lord Jesus, I am guilty of sin. Lord, please have mercy on me and save me. Lord, do not give me the judgment that I deserve. Lord, don't let me neglect so great a salvation. Lord, I trust in you. Save me. Lord, we thank you that you take us as we are. I thank you that you look at us broken as we are, and you are not ashamed to call us brethren. Lord, as we are just amazed at the greatness of your sacrifice, at the greatness of your salvation. God, help us to press on into you. Lord, to fix our gaze on you, 
to obey you as you lead us and to remember that you are able to help us each step of the way. Thank you that you are able. God, may you get all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.